Good morning. Hope you all are doing well. My name is Jim. For those who have not had a chance to meet, I'm excited to unpack this Romans chapter 5. It's a little easier than the last time I uh, was able to deliver the homily where there was all this talk of wrath and God's judgment. This is a really, really fresh, joyous passage to be able to, to preach to you this morning, to unpack. It's a, it's a very different vibe in preparation and a very different vibe, I think, it will be in here. And so that is something we want to note. But before we do that, um, kids, my guess is that if you're anything like me, you've had some conflict, some disagreement, or some arguments with people that you're close to. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a parent. And if you are like me, which I'm guessing most people are like this, when there is a disagreement or an argument that you have with somebody that you're very close with, it is very unsettling. Does anybody ever have that experience, kids, where maybe you have an argument or disagreement with your best friend at school? It's so unsettling that you don't even really want to go to school. I'm sure you've probably experienced something like this. And that's because when there is relational tension, it's very hard to have peace. Now, magnify that to an even larger scale uh, that we as human beings, because of our sin nature, have that relational tension with God. And because as sinners, we have that relational tension with God, it's very difficult for us to have peace. But the good news that we're going to be talking about as adults today is that in chapter five, Paul says, yes, that is all true. We have that tension, but Christ has come. And because of the work that Christ did on the cross and through his resurrection, we actually, through faith and grace, have access to peace. And so there's a great question for you on the activity sheet. And I believe Miss Kimberly put a memory verse from this passage, a very famous one that if you memorize and are able to tell her at the end of the service, I hear there is a treat involved. All right. So for uh, the adults this morning, let's let's talk a little bit about Romans to this point. I think it's a good time for us to look back and see kind of the arc of the argument so far, especially since chapter five serves as a pivot point. If um, you were able to watch the uh, Bible project videos that we've sent out before and that Romans has two Bible passage or Bible project videos, there's one through four is one and then five through 16 is the second one. So we recognize that as we get into verses one through 11 of chapter five, we're in a pivot That Paul is making in his argument. So the first four chapters, let's look back on the entirety of what we know about Romans so far. This letter in particular and the message that Paul is is giving us. So Paul is writing this letter to a church in Rome. And it's a bit different than a lot of his other letters that he's written. In that he doesn't have a ton of familiarity and intimate relationships with the church. And so when he's writing to the church in Corinth or Philippi. He himself planted those churches. He has deep relationships with the people within those churches. And you can tell that there's a familiarity there in his writing. In Romans, there's less of that familiarity with the people that he is writing to. So in some ways, this serves as an introductory, uh, an introduction of Paul to this church. And there's some hopes that Paul has for his missionary journeys, hoping to use his (coughs) interaction with the Roman church to have as a staging point for his next uh, mission that he hopes to take all the way, take the gospel all the way west into Spain. And so 
it's very introductory. It's also very theologically rich. He's trying to make sure that this church has the message that Paul has spread around to these other churches very quickly that they can read it and attain it. He's also writing a message to a church that's pretty divided. So we might remember from several weeks ago, there there is a political move by the Roman Empire before Paul writes this letter where Emperor Claudius has sent out all of the Jewish people from the city of Rome. He has expelled the Jews from the city of Rome. And so that included the Jewish Christians. So they are out of the city of Rome for a while. And what's left of the church are the Gentile Christians. So after the Jewish Christians are allowed to come back to the city, there's this odd tension between the two groups that the Gentile Christians have kept on Going and put on that mark of their identity in the church. The Jewish Christians kept going when they were expelled from the city. Bring back this Jewish identity and expression of the Christian faith. And there's some tensions there. And that's kind of what works Paul's argument. So he starts off by, in chapter 1, in some ways talking to those pagan cultures from which these Gentiles come out of. And he very famously says all of this great stuff about you're without excuse from creation, conscience, that we know there is a God and that we've abandoned the truth of God for a lie. Chapter two, he pivots and he starts to talk specifically to the Jewish people. He says, now, in case you're a Jewish Christian reading this in the church, you're not off the hook. You, too, though you had the law, violated the law, you're not justified by that law. And he has leveled the playing field, which is a really great rhetorical move when you're trying to put together a a church that is um, divided. Right. So he has leveled the playing field from the people. And he says, all of us are sinners. All of us are those wicked people who have walked away from God. All of us are in need of restoration. Chapter four, he says, here's an exemplar. He he uses types several times. You're going to get a type of Abraham from chapter four and last week, and then next week in the later half of Romans five, you're going to see him set up Christ as a type of new Adam. And you're going to see him kind of use that. He talks about Adam uh, as a type of all of us, that we all sin like Adam. And if we have faith because of the work of Christ, who is the true Adam, then we'll be restored. And so residing in the middle of those two things are verses 1 through 11. And so that's where we've been in Romans. There have been some hard weeks. There's been several weeks of God's wrath, God's judgment against sin, God's judgment against uh, wickedness, our complicity in wickedness, because we remember chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then this is a really beautiful pivot moment where he says, however, essentially, that because of the work of Christ, we have access to peace. So Romans 5 through 11, there is this promise of hope. It's a good news message. We've recognized that sin separates us from God, and that separation is disconcerting. So we feel hopeless, anxious, depressed, sad. We're constantly striving because what sin has done is separated us from this intended Peace with God, where we would have all we need, we would have joy, we would have shalom, which was that ancient understanding of peace and rest. Sin has severed that for us. And chapter 5, 
enters where it says, because of faith, which is a gift through grace, we have access to this peace. And so because we've been justified by faith through grace as a gift, it's nothing that we've done. He's again pointing back to an earlier part of his argument that you might have thought the law saved you in chapter two, but that has only pointed out your inability to do anything to save yourselves. So the faith that you and I have is a gift. And that's what he's writing to us. It's a gift through grace that God has given us this faith. And as this gift of faith is given to us, we now have access to this peace. And it's the very peace for which we were created. It's the very peace he's going to go on to say that Adam severed. And before we get too hard on Adam and blame him, we too have severed that peace. We are active participants. We are not uh, innocent bystanders, right? So in chapter five, he has set this stage that we have access to this peace because in our weakness and in the depths of our sin, Christ even then died for us in order to give us this gift of faith through his grace that we might have peace. And this is um, really well summed up in probably the most famous quote from St. Augustine in his book, The Confessions. So Augustine had lived a pretty wild life prior to becoming a Christian. So a lot of what you saw in Romans 1 is a lot of what Augustine participated in well into his adult years. Augustine was not making wise decisions, and what he found was this restlessness within him. He thought if he could attain this great power um, as a political leader and a philosopher, he would be happy. He attained that power. He gets so far as to be um, a speechwriter for the emperor himself. If I could just have this political power, I'll be happy. He's not happy. If he could just satisfy all of his earthly desires, he'd be happy. So like Solomon, he goes out and he tests all those things. And yet he finds he's still not at peace. And that's where this famous quote you might have heard from St. Augustine. He says, thou, talking to God, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. So Augustine is given this gift of faith through the grace of Christ, and he actually finds the peace that he was longing for this whole time. And that is ultimately the thing we all want. What we as humans want is peace. The problem with our sin nature and with a broken and sinful world is that we grasp at things that will never actually bring us peace. In fact, you can see that pretty well today in our modern American experience. You know, we have this constitution that you'll probably often hear quoted, and you might be thinking, why is he bringing up the constitution? We're going to get there. I think it directly ties to John 8, which is where I want to close today. So we have this, this idea from the Constitution that we are endowed by our creator with inalienable rights, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so I want to talk a little bit about freedom, true freedom, why we have so many people in our modern world that have this restlessness is because they have mistaken the idea of freedom and in large part have remained slaves to sin, which is Christ's message in John 8. And that can lead to hopelessness 
And where I want us to get to is fear not because of the gift of faith through grace and the work of Christ that while we were still sinners in our weakness, Christ died for us and we can be restored to peace and right order with God. So this idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, in our modern context, that idea of liberty has come to mean our freedom to do whatever we want to do. That is a wholly new understanding, certainly in church history, but really um, in the history of Western civilization. And so we can go back as far as Aristotle, who was a Greek philosopher 2,400 years ago, And we can see that the ability to do whatever you want to do is actually not freedom. And actually, the word that our founding fathers of the United States assigned as happiness comes from the Greek term eudaimonia. And eudaimonia does not mean what we generally understand as happy. It does not mean euphoric, fluttering feelings in our belly that make us have momentary sense gratification. But eudaimonia is something very different. To Aristotle, eudaimonia was a designed thing living to its teleological end. I know that sounds like a big word, but telos simply means the point for the thing existing. That we find peace, eudaimonia is probably more, is better translated joy, a centeredness, a peace. That even Aristotle, this pagan Greek philosopher, understood humans actually really long for. So what our founding fathers, as they're penning this document, they say, we have the right to pursue that eudaimonia, that peace, that rightly ordered existence where we are living out our purpose, right? That we are doing the thing for which we were made. And there's real liberty in doing the thing for which we were made. And when we look at our modern world today, we hear terms like freedom and liberty, the idea that people have the right to pursue their happiness. And we wonder, why does our modern culture seem so restless? Why does our modern culture not have the peace if we have all of this freedom to pursue whatever it is we want to pursue? And as Augustine said, the answer is the fact that we will be restless until our hearts find their rest in God, because that is the rest for which we were created. And anything else will detract from our peace, will detract from our, our rest. In fact, Patrick Deneen, who is a professor at Notre Dame University, puts it this way. He, he writes often about our modern conception of liberty, of freedom, and how it is so antithetical to the scriptures of what it means to truly be free to truly have peace. Patrick Deneen writes, to be free above all was to be free from enslavement to one's own basest desires, which could never be fulfilled and the pursuit of which could only foster ceaseless cravings and discontent. I'll read that again because I think he is showing us what liberty and freedom, Christian liberty and freedom, the peace that comes from it, that gift of God, really means and how it is so different than this modern understanding of the liberty to do whatever I want that I might find peace. You'll hear a lot of our modern woes in his summation, setting these two different types of freedom against one another. Again, he says to be free above all was to be free from the enslavement to one's own basis desires, which could never be fulfilled 
and the pursuit of which could only foster ceaseless cravings and discontent. I think if I were to sum up the modern ills of the culture in which we live, I would probably say that the ills come from our ceaseless cravings and discontent. And it's no wonder that we have no contentment, we have no peace, is because we are continually pursuing ceaselessly these cravings we have within us, and that fosters discontentment. Paul knew that in Romans. He recognized that when we abandon the truth of God for a lie and we do whatever we want, perhaps in the moment as we are gratifying our basis desires, gratifying our sense desires, that we might be happy. But we certainly don't have that eudaimonia, that centered peace, the thing for which we were created, the purpose of our existence. And in fact, if we continually pursue that, Not only will we miss out on real freedom, but those things that we think are making us free and happy will actually begin to make us more and more miserable. Uh, That is the way C.S. Lewis puts it in a a conversation on first things and second things. So Lewis says, when you have first things first, we have our rightly ordered affections, as St. Augustine would put it. If we love God first, primarily, we love others as ourselves, right? This, the greatest commandment, as our Savior puts it. Then the other things of life that God has given us to enjoy will give us freedom to enjoy them. But if we take those second things, whatever they may be, uh, pleasure, money, whatever those things are that aren't inherently in themselves evil, if we elevate those second things, to our primary aims, the highest goods of our lives, Lewis says not only do we miss out on the first things, but we actually miss the second things. We don't get any of the joy of the second things that God has allowed us to have within our existence for enjoyment. So we've robbed ourselves of both goods because we've misordered the goods. And that could be summarized as we become enslaved to that disorder, which leads us to John 8. So if you have your Bible, please open to John 8, beginning in verse 31. I'd like to read it again because I think these words are very important for us this morning, and I think they help Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, make sense. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because of my my word finds no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. We were created for freedom, true freedom. That means the freedom to be free from our basis desires, that endless, ceaseless craving that only leads to discontent. 
We were created to exist within that freedom, to have peace and to thrive. Sin has severed us from the peace for which we were created. But as Christ said, he came to set us free. And that's Paul's message in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. That in order for us to have true hope, we have to have peace. And in order for us to have peace, we have to be set free from this enslavement to sin. And once we have that freedom through the grace and the gift of faith and the work of Christ, we can find contentment. And ultimately, if we search our lives and we see all of the things, the areas of our lives where we are continually in sin or where we really struggle against sin, we are doing those things in order to bring ourselves contentment and to bring us peace. And if we were to take an honest reflection That is what all humans share in common. That's what sin does. We think we are finding peace. We think we're finding comfort, joy, contentment, but we become slaves to our sin and we aren't free. But the good news that Paul tells us in chapter five of Romans is that you were created for peace. You have access to that peace because you've been justified by the work of Christ, by the gift of faith through God's grace. You are free to now live in that freedom, true liberty. And so we have this message to give to this community and to this this culture that we see around us continually striving, ceaselessly craving, falling into discontentment, that there is hope. And the hope is in the work that Christ has accomplished. And the hope is in the fact that no matter how weak you are, it is precisely in your weakest state that Christ came and died for you. And that's Paul's message in chapter five, that we would have true freedom. That is very good news. All of us have naturally, because of our sin nature, a restlessness, a restless heart. But when we find our peace in God, as Augustine says, God has made us for himself. Our hearts are only restless until they rest in God. So to conclude, I just want to remind us that we have hope because we are free in Christ. We are free in Christ because we have peace. We have peace because of the gift of faith. We have this faith through the grace of God and the work of his son. That is very good news and filled with hope. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this good news. I thank you that you have reminded us of the results of our sin in these first four chapters of Romans, the judgment, the righteous judgment that is against wickedness, your love and your grace by sending your son, the peace and contentment that comes from the freedom of truly being free, that you have, through your son, come to set us free from the enslavement to sin. Father, I pray this morning that we would be filled with hope, that our hearts would be filled with rest, trusting that you are a God of mercy who loves us, that we have access to grace because you love us. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.